Well, this is Irvin S. Yeaworth Jr., whom everybody calls Shorty. So here I am watching for the first time, I guess second time in 40-some years, The Blob all the way through. When we saw that opening credit come up, Paramount release, that was probably the biggest thrill any of us in the company had when we saw the first release of the show. And that little dot that got bigger and bigger in the circles that came around. It was a wonderful conception, which was carried off by Bart Sloan, our fabulous um, art director, animator, as well as the man who created the special effects. And, <clears throat> and the music that Ralph Carmichael wrote to that was just ev evocative and very effective. But then Paramount disappointed us by putting this music by this unknown new composer, Bert Backrack or somebody on the thing. And of course, that music, that tune, which became so popular in L.A. where the picture opened, helped make the show. We wouldn't have made it without that music. So we're glad it was done. But it'd be sort of fun to see the other opening with the music the way it was done. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor. Right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and glides. Oh man, when that blob came on like that in reverse and then it was covered the screen, the music was just perfect. But we're glad for Bert Brackrack for lots of reasons. I can remember the storyboarding on this scene. We wanted to open with the eyes of this girl and then pull around, and we did it, and it never comes out the way you dreamed about it. Sometimes the opposite is true. It comes out better than you ever thought about. And Steve was about the same age that, I guess he and I were the same age when we made this. And as Hollis Alpert said in his review, I guess, in one of the magazines, uh, the world's oldest teenagers. And Steve said, I won't play young. He said, I'll just, I'll play enthusiastic and interested. And, and that's what he did. He said, I just don't think we can get us old people to play like 14 years old. So we'll just go ahead and play it like we're sort of innocent and ready to go ahead and see if we can solve the problem. Some of the slow pacing is caused by the fact that we had so little film to play with, with our tremendously small budget, that we actually didn't do enough reverses and, and cover shots to protect ourselves against uh, difficulties like that. And so we had to uh, sometimes just go with what we had. And uh, we, we, we tried to edit in the camera too much on this, my first feature. This was our first major set that we did on our biggest sound stage that we had in our th of the three stages we had at Chester Springs where we shot the movie. And we built this uh, cabin twice, once for the wide shot in about one-third or one-half scale with the crater of the blob in the foreground. And then we had a larger 
uh, reproduction of the same thing in this full size, which Ole Holland came through. And somebody's holding the rear end of that dog there, so he won't come out. <laughs> Ole, of course, was a very uh, experienced actor with many major credits under his belt. The Shirley Temple thing, uh, Lindbergh, all kinds of major films. And we wanted to people this film with unknown leads but with familiar faces in the supporting cast, and Ole and Stephen Chase, who was at that time president of the New York Screen Actors Guild, uh, uh, played the doctor. And we felt that having some familiar faces in the character uh, roles would do, give the picture a different look than it would have if we had just totally unknown people. It was fun to be with guys like Ole, and he, um, Olin Howland. He um, he came to the studio, and we spent a couple of days together, and then he went on his way. And then we had to do some other shots with, uh, actually, the vice president of our company, who was um, he happened to have white hair about the same length, and so we just uh, kept the wardrobe and had Frank Four uh, double him from the back. Somebody asked about how we made this thing do what it did. It was just a simple effect which made sense to us. We would cut to the hand and then of course that was done upside down and inserted later, but everybody thought it looked like it was going uphill. We did some casting in New York as well as casting in the Philadelphia area. <clears throat> and as a matter of fact, the way we got Steve McQueen was that uh, we had, actually my associate producer and I had had a very hard day of, of, of uh, casting people in a hotel up in New York, went out to have a little uh, breath of fresh air, and whom did we see on the street but Steve McQueen, whom we had seen just a few days before on a, on a TV show with Ralph Bellamy, the first two-part television show that I know of, and uh, I saw it, and Jack Harris saw it in his house, and we talked on the phone about it, and then here we are in New York two days later, and we saw him walking his dog Thor on Upper Fifth Avenue, I think it was, outside Rumpelmeyer's, as a matter of fact, and the St. Moritz, not far from there. Uh, in New York, we walked over to the, uh, to the park, uh, and we, we sat in the park, talked about the picture, and made the deal there. We had met Steve before because he'd come down to visit uh, a girl he was dating at that time about oh, six or eight months before then. She was acting in another picture we were doing down there. And um, he came down to visit. And then when we saw him here, he said, oh, you're the guys from that religious film company in, in, in Pennsylvania. And I said, yeah. So he said, uh, what are you doing? So we told him about the picture. And he said, I'd like to do it. And we made the deal sitting on a rock in Central Park while, while Thor was chasing birds or something. Uh, for our first film uh, that we're going to make aimed at the theatrical market to see if we could do that before we'd be uh, tempted to try to make a film with serious message because we didn't feel like that we were smart enough to do that yet, uh, we went and, um, and wrote something up uh, which was a Bridie Murphy kind of thing about people who had lived other lives before. And it was an interesting popular idea at the time. 
And the man who wanted to be our partner in this, Lou Kelman, said, uh, after having read the script and liked it, he said, I've shown it to one of my buddies who's a distributor. And Lou Kelman was in the production side of things uh, with a laboratory in Philadelphia. And he had met a man by the name of Jack Harris, and Jack was a distributor working with what they call states' writer uh, films. He would buy a film for his territory and find ways of promoting it. He'd take, as he used to say, other people's mistakes and, and, and uh, somehow come up with a campaign and make these uh, failed movies in other territories do well in his territory because of his skills as a promoter. And he uh, was a friend of Lou's, and he uh, came over and uh, visited us one day, and he said, you know, I don't think you should make this Bridie Murphy film kind of thing because there are four or five films like that already announced on the market. Why don't you do something else that I've got a script for called The Molten Meteorite, or The Molten Meteor. And it was a science fiction picture, and I'd never done science fiction. Didn't have that much interest in science fiction, as a matter of fact. But um, uh, Jack convinced us that it just might go well, and uh, so uh, let's take this simple idea and see if we can write a script around it. And uh, that was done by Irv Milgate, a very a creative man who was in charge of the audiovisual department for the Boy Scouts of America. And so we worked on this and wrote a script and with, uh, created the characters that were played later by Steve and any other people and, uh, and made the movie. Someone was at my office today and said, uh, before I go, could I see the blob? I thought she wanted to see the, the movie. and She meant she wanted to see the blob as if we had it in the cage someplace. Um, uh, but in fact, uh, I said, oh, come to think of it, I do have a bit. So I have a, a pointed a jar that's up on a shelf in, in my library. And uh, she said, well, what, what was it made out of? And I said, well, this was something which hadn't been used uh, in the culture uh, as it has been since that time so ex exhaustively, it was silicon, uh, when it was, which, which is just a glass which is molten at room temperature. It's glass made from sand, but uh, it's, it's molten at room temperature, and that silicon, of course, has gone on to other uses. And of course, we used that uh, many times. Other times, we would use uh, cutouts. Uh, we had a large one that was um, that just had some um, holes cut in it, which we put some um, uh, colored paper behind and lit it from the back. And so, when it was pulled through the um, supermarket, it, it was much larger than we could ever do with with silicon of that size. So. Also, we used a weather balloon for a time and uh, just spread the blob stuff over it. And most of the miniatures, a lot of the stuff that was done with the miniatures was done through an ingenious system which Bart Sloan created. We had a 4 by 8 table which had on it all the lights and the camera and the little set and our silicon blob material. And we would turn the whole thing upside down and have it come toward us while he took a frame of this, a frame of that, a frame of that, a frame of that. And then we would take the table and, and put it back down the other way so it would undulate back and forth as we uh, manipulated this thing with gravity. But the lights and the little sets remained the same. And um, let's face it, without what Bart Sloan had done, the picture would never have had a chance to, uh, to have been completed. There I am. I'm the guy in the blue shirt. I think I was Tony. Uh, I'm Robert Fields. This is my first job. It's great to see it. 
I was studying acting in New York City, and somebody said, hey, they're casting a movie, and I ran over, and I, I guess I, I auditioned well enough, and I got the job. And what was the job? Go on down, get your suitcase packed, and go into the country, Chester, I think it was Chester Springs, Pennsylvania, uh, to a little religious film company setting, and uh, they're going to put you in a movie, and you're going to play a guy named Tony, and uh, you won't get any money, but I think they'll give you food, they'll give you a cot, sort of like the army, and uh, when you're 17, 18, and you've never had an acting job and somebody says you can have an acting job you go you don't care about food and you don't care about money you just run later that changes and seeing all these people seeing steve mcqueen and these hedgerow actors i think i think the director as i remember uh shorty yeworth he got a lot of wonderful character actors in philadelphia at the hedgerow the hedgerow theater was a little prestigious repertory company operating out of Philadelphia. And then they came to New York City looking for the rest of the cast. And they got Steve McQueen. And uh, happily, they got me and the other teenagers that were in the picture. What did I say? Backward. Huh? You could beat this kitty car going backwards. The light. Okay. You say when. Okay. Uh, some of the cute things we did, like the the backwards uh, race, because he said, "I can beat your car going backwards." He said, "What do you mean? I'll ride, I'll draw, I'll race you backwards." We just thought it'd be sort of a fun thing to try. Although I must say that one of our other films, we did something like that, and then we found kids imitating us, and we didn't like that. So we've been a little more careful since that time. Anita was uh, one of the um, people who came to our uh, casting, general casting session in New York uh, the day we were talking, uh, uh, that I talked about earlier, and uh, the day we actually bumped into Steve again. And we'd, we'd, we'd read a number of people that looked uh, good for the part, a couple of the gals that we didn't uh, take for the uh, lead uh, ingenue. Um, actually, we used in other parts of the film. Now, in the scene here with the cop, that's played by Earl Rowe, who's from the Philadelphia area. Actually, the first time I met him was when we were working together on a show that played on Christmas Eve every year on ABC out of WFIL uh, Channel 6 in Philadelphia in those days, the Annenberg Station. And it was called The Story of Silent Night, and he played... Uh, uh, the young uh, man who, uh, wearing his lederhosen, who was involved with uh, coming up with the Silent Night, Holy Night song. And uh, I was a music director at that time, and I, uh, I conducted the, uh, the musical, wrote and conducted the musical score for the, picture, for the uh, show, which played for three or four or five years. I, I can't remember. And Earl played with us uh, on a number of... Uh, uh, of the films we were making during those days. We made probably 116 millimeter films before we made this this 35 millimeter feature film. We'd done 
the color, dramatic lighting, and all of that kind of stuff uh, many, many times. But we had not done a, a complete um, feature length film, although we had done an hour, hour and 15 minutes. But this one was, I guess, this one ran about 83 minutes, I can't recall. It was a short feature. Lock me up. You mean you were dry? Why? What am I going to do with you kids? You know, I don't want to. You know, this saying that. Uh, that actors have about their jobs, their careers. It's called dying on film, meaning that as you see yourself in old movies, you're now older and you see the progress of, of your life. It's uh, unique to the actor's life that, unlike a shoe salesman, doesn't really see himself selling shoes at 18 and then at 50, uh, an actor does. An actor sells shoes at 18 and then 50, and you can see it on film. And you, you see yourself dying on film. It's kind of a odd way to look at it, but it, it's really the truth. And uh, but I like I like seeing the film again because I think I was I say to myself, man, you're a pretty nice looking kid. You're very nice looking. That's a spoiled. Youth is spoiled on youth. I didn't realize I was a good actor like that, and I didn't realize I was so good looking, you know? Uh, at least I tell my daughter that. We can't get it started, you know? He says, I don't care. Uh, I remember uh, where we're all surrounding Steve after we race him. Uh, we shot very well, and it shows two things. It shows really nice framing by Shorty Yeaworth, uh, which we're all sitting on Steve's car. And I was about to say there's no close-ups due to lack of money, but there is some. I notice here I'm talking to Steve, and there is a close-up on me, but we're really the camera is shooting from behind Steve and doesn't come around on him, as I remember. As I remember, it's this point of view, so you see everybody, um, and it saves a lot of money to not have to come around the other side of the car where we're, where we are and shoot towards Steve. So although Steve's the lead, uh, he was not, as they say, covered in the scene, and that would be a money consideration. Uh, but from, from my point of view, this was a good night because the camera was on me, and uh, actors always like that. They like the camera to be on me. Uh, it was not a place that you could date uh, fine girls, except the pretty girl, Anita Corseau. Uh, so it was mostly a lot of character actors and the director and the technicians. So that was the only downside about working in Chester, Pennsylvania at 18 years old. Uh, you want to be in a movie and you want to meet a lot of girls. And there were no girls there. There were trees, trees and bushes, as I remember, and little shacks where the film company shot their religious films, but no girls. The religious aspect of the uh, project, meaning simply that we were using the facilities of a religious film studio, uh, didn't affect us because there were no, there were no signs of or, or influences. It was just basically a little think of think of going away to camp in Maine or New Hampshire or something like that that's that's the feeling that it reminded me of when I was a little kid and I went to New Hampshire to camp or to Maine for the summer 
that was the feeling that you had going there. A bunch of little shacks and a mess hall and some places to sleep, bunks, pretty much like a camp. I may have to get ahead of it and amputate. Now, I, I don't know what it is or where it came from. The scene where we find the uh, rock or the remnants of what the blob burst out of is very vivid in my memory. Uh, Steve kneels down and picks up this rock uh, which had fallen uh, from space. And I thought what was interesting, a uh, couple of things. First, he attempted to create the sense that the rock was hot and uh, still hot since it was uh, so fiery falling out of space. And I did the same thing. When James Bonnet caught the rock, uh, he, didn't, he didn't take any time to continue to pass that on. So he holds the rock, and he doesn't care that it's hot. He doesn't try to create that feeling. This actor in the striped shirt does try to do a little of what Steve and I did. So it was hot for Steve and me, cold for Bonnet, and then not cold after that. Uh, but this scene, this scene was shot indoors. It was just a building, one of the larger buildings in which they uh, created the sense that we were in the woods. This is about my favorite scene because it contains uh, an experience I had with Steve in the middle of the scene with the director, and, and, and it, it's really to do with uh, what, what an actor's life is like. When they meet on the street, two actors usually say, hey, how did the movie go? And the actor will say, oh, it went great. And, and the other actor says, well, how is the director? And the, the uh, actor says, great, he left me alone. And actors always like to be left alone because they study a long time and they're, they know what to do and they need little adjustments, but sometimes directors, not Shorty Aworth, they push you around a lot and, and they make you more tense and nervous than they need to. But this scene was great because it's the throwing the meteor rock around scene, I guess. And, and uh, I, I was saying something in the scene and the director didn't like whatever it was I was doing. I was going too fast. I was going too slow. I was too, well, I don't know what he said because it's 43 years ago, but it went on and on and on. And finally, Steve said, Shorty, uh, excuse me. He said, I, I went to the neighborhood playhouse and Bob went to the neighborhood playhouse. So we speak the same language. I think I know what you're getting at. Can I? Can I talk to him for a second? I think it'll save time. Shorty said, sure, Steve, go ahead. And he took me over to the corner of the set. It was a meteor scene, but we were indoors when we shot it. And Steve put his arm around me and he said, fuck him, keep doing what you're doing. And then he walked back. We walked back together to the, to the camera location and smiling and and steve said okay i think i think he's got it now bob's got it now shorty said good we shot it i didn't change anything and shorty said wonderful that's it thanks thanks let's move on well my whole my whole experience on the film i was i became friends with Stephen queen and i didn't really uh, get to know anybody else but Steve and I kind of 
hooked up, and he had a sports car. He was always famous for for racing. I think he raced professionally as well uh, for a long time. And he had a sports car. And when we were when we were off and not working, when we were bored, he would say, "Let's why don't we go into Philadelphia for Chinese food or something like that?" And I say, "Great!" So we would get in the car. And it was a two-seater sports car, racing car, and he would proceed to get to Philadelphia in about three minutes and three minutes coming home. I never was so scared in my life as driving that car on those windy roads. He he must have gone 100 miles an hour. It was great. It was a lot of fun, but it was scary, too. He was a very, very uh, alive person, very, very uh, unusual Sometimes when we were free, he had a rifle with him, and we would go into the woods and shoot shoot at rocks and stuff like that. He had been in the Marines, and he was familiar with, with weapons, and he had a rifle. And, and it was like, it was almost in a way like being with a, an older brother or a, or a dad, you know. Uh, that's the way I related to him, and, and that's the way uh, he did with me. And so... Most of my experience is the memories I have of Steve McQueen and what a wonderful, alive person he was. I never saw Steve too much after the film. I went to the hotel on Central Park South once, I remember, to see him. And he was, he was staying in the hotel, coming in from Malibu, and he was taking, uh, <clears throat> I think he had some balloons, and he was filling them with water and he was dropping him out the window onto onto 58th Street, onto 6th Avenue, and uh, I don't think he hit anybody with it, but they made big, big explosions for tourists uh, walking on the street, these balloons filled with water. Later I saw him in Malibu on his motorcycle, later in his life, and Ali McGraw, who, who... uh, he married, they loved each other very much, was on the back of the motorcycle, and it was near the end of his life, and uh, I was on a, on the beach road there, and they drove by on a Sunday and waved, and, and it was my last memory of Steve, still alive, still very, very much uh, alive, and, and probably scaring Ali McGraw to death on the back of the motorcycle. There's no question that Steve McQueen was just a remarkable choice for us, and we're glad that he, he, he wanted to do this. He had not had a role in a picture uh, where he was the star from the beginning to end before, and this was in color, and he had not done that before either, I don't believe. And um, the, uh, I'm going to look at a scene here now which uh, somebody just uh, said looked improvisational. I'll look at it and see. No, that that was that was just what he and I discussed. Uh, uh, it's really funny because in a picture like this, what we try to do, and I've made other science fiction pictures since, and in those, you try to let the menace be off screen as much as you can, the reaction of people to what the menace is. And um, also, we try to keep it in shadows and darkness. Uh, if we'd had to do this thing in the light of day, it would have been very difficult to do it. Nowadays, with uh, computer-generated um, graphics, you can do anything you want to. But back in those days there, we had to work with little 
bits of indirection and a little hint of something here and a hint of something there and have the fear be in the shadows, not uh, fully developed and fully lit blob. Watch it, Dave. Don't mix up the pieces. Richie, you old buzzard. I didn't know you were a chess player. That's like I've been telling you. The three, the three cops here have all had some connection with Hedgerow in one way or another. Maybe Earl didn't, but the other two guys were from Hedgerow. Hedgerow Theater. Late at night when I'm here by myself and things are pretty slow, I... Well, you gotta do something. And these sets were all built in our... the same studio where we had the... Uh, the exterior of the uh, of the, uh, the little shack where the blob first landed with the crater. And they were both standing at the same time, so we had to back our camera into the backside of this while we were shooting the other scene. We used three studios for this movie, three of our stages. The reason I wanted to use Steve was because I felt that he had a kind of unpredictability about him and a quicksilver quality, mercurial quality, if you will. And um, that quality actually um, is what makes him an arresting, interesting character, but makes him a little difficult to work with because um, that was he was playing himself so much of the time. We're playing the, the character that he liked to play in real life. He borrowed my car once and, uh, and took it up to New York. It was a brand new car, the only new car I've ever bought in my life, before or since, because I'm not a new car buyer. And, um, but this station wagon, which we were so proud of, he said, could he take it up to New York or someplace? And he came back, and the, and the, the roof was dented in because he'd done something on the roof. We don't know what. I went home with him one night from uh, shooting the scene in the supermarket. And um, we were coming home about 3 o'clock in the morning, and he was driving his Austin Healey supercharger at that time, and we came into a curve, which I used to do at about 40 miles an hour, and he was doing it at 70. And I knew I was going to die. I mean, I, there was no question about it, and I was happy that I was ready to die. <laughs> and uh, miraculously, he spun around the thing and just barely missed the... Uh, um, telephone poles that the people who lived in that house at the corner had put in the ground to keep people from missing that corner and ending up in their house, which had happened several times before. He liked to do risky things like that. He, he, his dog Thor, he would put uh, cans, a tin can on the head of the, of, the, of, the, of the dog and shoot it off with his rifle. And uh, just taking that kind of chance, and one day we got the word after the picture was over that he'd done that to Thor and had made a mistake and had hit the dog. And Neil, his wife at the time, told me later that she had um, he'd done the Russian roulette thing with her with a gun once, and it's a little scary. But so therefore, his uh, his um, real life uh, bravado r uh, was what made him an interesting character, and that's what we all liked. All the directors who ever used him, but he sometimes gave trouble because he uh, on the set because he wanted to be willful and do his things his own way. We he wouldn't keep his dog Thor out of our studio. The dog he he would let the dog come in through a door which we would keep closed, and he'd open it so the dog could come in and be cool in the basement of the studio, and the next thing you know, we'd hear the dog barking during a, a scene. We were shooting with our very precious short supply of film, and uh, he said, well, you can't coop him up, and he, he had that kind of nature. 
But he was a guy whose spirit we really loved and uh, enjoyed, and everybody who knew him knew he was a bad boy, but that somehow there was an ingratiating quality about him as well. He somehow was an everyman. We went on location from time to time, like here at the doctor's office, and Steve loved that. He said, boy, it sure is nice not to be in the studio. It, it helps the picture to open it up a little bit, and he's right. It, it did. By the way, when um, Steve died, um, the people from Worldwide Pictures out in California were in the process of talking to um, his widow and to Steve about, before that he died, about making a, a film on his life. And they went to his house after he died, and they found in his bedroom just one thing on the wall, and that was a poster for The Blob. It was sort of strange because he had um, not been happy about the experience on the blob uh, because he felt like a lot of money was made and he didn't get much. He just worked for scale, which was a lot more than the crew got. But um, he knew that it made a lot of money and uh, it was not the kind of uh, fine film that he'd like to have made at that time. So he sort of like uh, said disparaging things about it. But uh, it was sort of fun for my friend, who was the producer for Worldwide Pictures, to say that he, on the wall in his bedroom there was one thing only, and it was a poster for The Blob. This is the only way to get to the bottom of this. I'll see if I can find the fuse box. Okay. Steve, I wonder where the little dog is. Yeah. What do you think happened to him? I don't know. That music you're hearing in the background is a minor rendition of the, the love theme for The Blob, which was written by my wife, Jean, who was a music supervisor as well and a good friend, as am I, with Ralph Carmichael. And so we came up with this uh, theme, which, she, uh, which she'd written, and uh, Ralph liked it. And as a matter of fact, after they played the major cue, for the um, for the film, over in um, in Hollywood at the Capitol Studios or Decca, I guess it was in the, in the. Gee, what building is it? The Round Building in California is it the Decca or the Capitol? <clears throat> Can't remember. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, we recorded this in the studio there, and when the fellas finished playing that string uh, arrangement Ralph had made of the love theme from the Blob that Gene wrote, the instrumentalists all uh, applauded it. You know how the violinists do that by hitting their bows to the violin. It was sort of an exciting moment because my wife was in the booth also as we were making sure the cues would fit the, fit the cut of the movie. Let me tell you what happened, kid. You and whoever else was in on this with you thought you'd put one over on the police. So you break in here when the doc's not around, you mess the place up a little. Oh, wait a minute, Jim. The kids couldn't have done this. You saw for yourself. The window was locked from the inside and so was the door. They rigged it with a piece of string. It's part of that plan to make us look silly. I think you're doing that pretty well by yourself, Sergeant. Yeah, this is the scene which is somehow representing the way society just won't listen to these kids because their reputation had gone before them. They had cried wolf one too many times. Why, it was Tony Grisad and, and Mooch Miller. Those kids? Well, that's your answer right there. They're just the kind of kids to pull a trick like this. But this time they've gone too far. There's no question that the blob has sort of like dogged my heels ever since I made it. The, um, it just 
won't die somehow. And uh, probably, even though I've done things of which I'm far more proud, yet more people are excited about hearing that this was something that I'd done back there in those early days than anything I've done since. I've pretty much, in the last 15 years or so, been working beyond just straightforward films, but using films as part of major presentational attractions uh, at world's fairs and theme parks and uh, the pavilions which get across ideas to large publics that come to world's fairs and things of that sort. And uh, I must say that the science fiction experience that I got on the blob and special effects were a big part of my being able to know how to work with the, the kind of materials and media that I'm working with these days. We're working right now, I'm leaving uh, uh, in a couple of days to go back to the Middle East where I'm working on a major show for the Kingdom of Jordan called The Jordan Experience. And uh, in that thing there, we have all sorts of special effects, which somehow got their start in my psyche from uh, this picture of the blob. One thing that we do take some pride in in the blob is that unlike uh, some of the, uh, um, the um, remakes of the blob, this really was aimed at, at the whole family. Uh, the, the remakes, some of them had such fabulous special effects and uh, wonderful budgets and things were done so well, so professionally. But they somehow had worked for a niche market which exists today as a principal film audience. And uh, we took some pride in trying to do this for the kids as well. Although I must admit, many kids have spoken to me over the years about how when they were eight or ten and they saw this, they wanted to sleep with a light on thereafter. And I know that there were friends of mine who had kids who went with them to see the show back in the 50s, and uh, the kids would run out of the theater and stand at the back and stick their head around the corner to look at the uh, screen when they got up enough courage to do it again. So I guess we did scare our share of small kids. But there was nothing, I don't think, um, offensive in terms of language or vulgarity or violence, except for the fact that we did destroy a large number of people in the theater. Some of our people were a little bit uh, embarrassed by the fact that we were making a picture which we were going to call something like The Blob. It's just it's sort of hard to tell your folks back home, hey, I'm making this wonderful picture. It's called The Blob. And uh, yet we knew we had to come up with a title like that, which the comedians uh, on television would pick up and, and kid and could become part of the uh, culture. We knew that we were aiming for that kind of thing. We spent two weeks working on a title before we found one in our studio, we had in our office a room which had a big blackboard in a conference room, and we invited people to come in and write titles. And our image of the picture always was that this is an unsolvable problem. And we remember the Sherwin-Williams paint label, which showed the earth with paint covering the top part of it and starting to drip down the sides. And I think that their theme was uh, Sherwin-Williams covers the earth. And that was the image we wanted to project with our audience. And therefore, we were looking for something which dealt with that. And one of the guys wrote on the blackboard one day as a title, The Glob That Girdled the Globe. And uh, other titles were more popular with our crew. 
like the Night of the Creeping Dread and what have you, but uh, the glob that girdled the globe sort of uh, had something which we liked because that was the image which I felt we should work toward. And we finally said, why don't we just call it the glob? And we had settled on that, and the titles were being done with that name until Jack Harris found out that glob had already been copyrighted by uh, Walt Kelly, the pogo man, a cartoonist. And so um, he, uh, uh, we're on, in California ready to start shooting this animation, and all of a sudden Jack said, we've got to change it. And so he went through the alphabet and tried to figure out what we could do that would be like glob that would not be glob, and so ended up and the second time, second word he came to was blob, and that's uh, what it was called. When we chose that title, the blob, uh, finally, the glob, which became the blob, um, we really wanted something that the people would pick up and want to make fun of. And Bob Hope and Red Skelton and Steve Allen, all these guys mentioned the blob. I remember, was it Bob Hope that said, um, I can see the blob I'm receiving the Academy Award for the best picture, and the blob will come down the aisle, and it will take the the Oscar, and will take the Oscar giver, and will take the audience, and go out with it. And uh, what fun to have uh, succeeded in the two weeks we finally spent in our office with our working on it, almost uh, for a full day every day, with people sitting around that room, our creative staff, trying to figure out how could we accomplish that. And uh, we're, I guess, as proud of that aspect of, of our marketing as you were of anything. Lieutenant, I want you to know that Steve is not in the habit of telling lies. This uh, man playing the father of the girl, Jane, is Bert Smith, who is a, a chum at Yale Graduate Drama School with Russ Doughton, who was my associate producer on the picture. And... Uh, he was uh, working with a theater group in York, Pennsylvania, and uh, came in to play to help us make the movie and acted as an assistant to Russ in the production department and then played this character. When Russ was at uh, Yale Graduate Drama School, by the way, um, one of his good buddies was a young fellow by the name of Paul Newman and Joanne. And uh, so um, that, that was where Paul had... Uh, where, um, Russ had come from before he came to join our staff. He'd gotten his master's of fine arts in the graduate drama school at Yale. And um, I was a little in awe of Russ because of his credits when he uh, applied for a job with our studio. And um, it, was, it was such what my wife said, dear me, he's got all the skills and abilities you have. Uh, you won't be necessary anymore. But Russ and I became good friends, and he went on to, to start a company, uh, which is one of the largest distributors of religious films anywhere in the world. He made a film which has been seen by more people probably than any other religious uh, film. It's called Thief in the Night, and he's now working on a major 30-some million dollar picture. Uh, he's a, a good friend. Hello? Hey. Yeah? Okay, Jim. Doc's place locked up? Yeah. Check back in then. Right. When I see the bits and pieces of this film and realize that what you're seeing on the screen is just about what we shot, because we just didn't have the ability or the money or the, the sense to realize we had to do more reverses and reaction shots and, and other angles so that we could improve the pacing. We more or less were stuck with what we, the way we shot it.
I got a few more dollars on my next picture, and so we uh, covered the picture far better. But this one here was as tight as I've ever found in the editing room, and I believe that editing is the principal art of filmmaking. In the meantime, at least we know where the kids are. You have to have cameras, you have to have a story, you have to have actors and lighting and all the rest of it, but I believe that the picture is made or lost in the editing room. And uh, this was a hard, hard one to work on because we had so little to play with because of our very tight budget. I must say that one of the interesting um, phenomena of my life has been that uh, I've had so many people tell me that they know somebody who was involved with making The Blob, and I think the numbers must be certainly 1,000, 1,500 people who've worked on this picture. Uh, and I've, I've heard people tell me about, oh, yeah, he was involved in that picture. <clears throat> and I, I haven't a clue about uh, who, who the person is, although we had a lot of people helping us to get it done. But um, um, it's, it's been fun that the people somehow have looked upon this as being something a little special. The little boy was uh, the, the, the son of uh, some folks from the church we went to. And uh, so uh, I guess uh, so were others in the film. And the little dog belonged to one of the fellows that sang in the choir that I conducted in that church. A little doggy that he was delighted to have become a movie dog. And the cars uh, that were used later on in the picture all came from... Uh, from people in the neighborhood who just spread the word, we want some wonderful old cars. And so they showed up with them. Do you think he did something wrong? I don't know. I don't think so. And apparently the police don't either, or they wouldn't have sent him home. I felt that he was keeping something from us. The woman who is speaking off stage now is the wife of the man who doubled for Ole Howland. And... Um, Beth Four, and I've completely forgotten that, that I guess anybody who was uh, walking around our studios when we were recording would be given a line here or there because we uh, we did that a lot in our early days. Everybody did everything. We were sort of proud of this sequence here as <clears throat> Steve. <clears throat> we were sort of proud of this sequence here as Steve did what a lot of teenagers have done to creep out of the house and, uh, and then have to get out get his car away without um, it making a noise. And so uh, he, uh, and I got this out of my own life, this story, as, uh, as he wanted to open the door, um, but it was going to make too much noise and wake his family. So he waited till a, a truck went by nearby. And while that noise was happening, masking him, he opened the door. I guess that happens in another few minutes. Steve? Huh? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. At least I could have done is thank you for coming out tonight. You didn't need to. I never needed to talk to him before, not as much as I do now. That's my wife's love theme from The Blob, which since that time we have heard hundreds of times because it, it was uh, part of a, uh, a library which uh, got played over and over again all over the world. Took him to the docks, and I know the docks sent us out to see if we could find out what happened. And I know the old man had something on his hand, something he couldn't get off. 
we we always worked in color. In fact, I, I, the only thing I did in, in black and white was television. <clears throat> and um, I, I was so poor when I started doing my production. Back in 1949, I did my first um, television production. I was very young, and television was very young, and we had to somehow just stay one step ahead of disaster in those days. My first show was a, a network show on ABC. It was on every Sunday night. They had to open the network for an extra half hour to put our show in there. And um, um, that was black and white. And I didn't have television in my own home then. I couldn't afford it, so I'd look at it uh, over the top of uh, bar doors or, or <laughs> someplace with somebody who happened to have one. And I did uh, t color television production when it came in many places when uh, uh, they only had one camera and we had to run back and forth between um, uh, ends of the studio for different sets by uh, going through to a film chain with some slides of flowers or something on it because we only the studios could only own uh, one camera at that time they were so expensive but uh, in film we've always worked in in color And uh, I think, and we'll see smoke coming up behind Steve's back in one of the close-ups, if I remember correctly, because he had to have a cigarette and needed to take one shot, and he um, uh, just, you know, didn't want to snuff it out, so he just put it behind his hand and cupped his hand behind his back, and I think you'll see that, if I remember correctly, that there was a, a whiff of smoke coming up over his shoulder. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Boy, uh, that's that's a forty-some-year-old memory because this, this picture was made a year before that. It's going to be forty-three years. We were sort of happy with this scene because uh, we were working uh, in a sort of a nice uh, set in the studio and. Uh, we felt like it gave them a chance to do a little something here together. The um, Ted was the principal writer, the head of the writing team, and Irv Milgate was the guy who had the idea, the concept for the blob. So that's what his part of the script was. And then we hired Kay, who was a, uh, a writer for NBC, who did some polish on the script for us. And then, actually, the shooting script was, was done by... I always work on that myself. And here he is pushing the car out now. And of course, he, they're pushing it out so they won't have to turn it on and make the noise. And we just thought that was a typical kid kind of thing, sort of fun to do. This film seems not like it was made in 1957, but in... 1857, uh, so simple, such a simple film, and, and, and still could scare little kids, I guess. Uh, but today, I don't know. I don't know if maybe little kids, it would scare them still because it's a simple tale simply told. Interesting thing about the movie sequence, first of all, uh, of course, it's the Colonial Theater and in Phoenixville, which um, we still use. Um, they were kind enough to let me use that as a place to run my dailies from my Panavision Cinemascope 35mm show I'm doing in Jordan right now, and uh, I just ran it there last week. And also, the movie that's on the screen is something 
that is representative of the kind of film that Jack Harris used to distribute and make good money on and get crowds to come see because he had ways of selling these things and making them work well. What a wonderful little movie place that was. It was it was so charming and real. It fit the story and all the locations that they used were wonderful because they fit the story and the story fit what where we were shooting. And uh, I remember the I remember the sequence in the movie theater because I, it was a pretty girl who was an extra sitting next to me, but I think she was engaged or something. But that girl, that blonde girl, she she didn't want to f- fall in love with me that summer, and it it was a little lonely there. When I wasn't hanging out with Steve, there was just the other teenagers, and that wasn't much fun. So uh, I thought she was cute and pretty, but. Uh, nothing came of that girl sitting next to me getting that extra job in that scene. And, and I did, I did uh, try to do some of my best acting with her, but it, nothing happened. And it was, uh, that, was, that was a big failure that summer. The people in this uh, community of Phoenixville have taken this, uh, this theater to heart, and they now have created an outfit which has restored it, and it's remarkable. It's going again, and they're doing classics and all kinds of uh, uh, interesting film presentations as well as live things. So um, our hats are off to the folks who want to treasure an old theater like this, which was an opera house at one time. Uh, I think it's worth uh, noting that uh, this picture was completely produced, directed, built, um, shot, everything by a homegrown, homegrown bunch of people. Uh, I just read every book I could get back in those days and uh, on cinema because there was no course that could teach cinema like they have now at SC and other places. There were, maybe there were one or two. Um, in those days, in the whole world. It had to be done by reading books, and so that's what I did. And then the people who came on to work with us were interested in making movies, and we would meet every week with a series of seminars and lectures and workshops, and the guys who were working in the photographic department would tell the rest of us what they learned about photography, and then somebody would talk about sound or editing or what have you, and that's how we uh, sort of taught ourselves. And this picture was made by people who had never done anything in films until they started working together in this film company. And um, on this film, we hired one professional during the filming, and that was Vin Kehoe, a very talented makeup man who did a skillful enough job here that I don't think people even are aware of the fact that we had makeup working on this film. Everybody else was homegrown. We, we came here just to warn you. Oh, a warning! Well, that's yeah. fine. I didn't know you cared. Hey, folks, We were in a little, little spot in Pennsylvania, no crowd control, no people, nothing, just, just a small bunch of people trying to make a little, a little film. And for me, it was an adventure to be on my own and be in Pennsylvania and be acting. And, and nobody knew who Steve McQueen was at that time in terms of being a star. We just uh, knew he was the, the lead, the main kid in the movie um and uh we we proceeded there were there were no ego problems like today uh it was just a bunch of people who came together and made the movie and nobody nobody uh was difficult as i remember and nobody had anything to say 
that was contrary to just trying to do the job. And I think when you look at the movie, it seems it seems genuine and it seems like it was shot in the right place with a small, little small town where the movie theater was and actors who are all appreciative of having the jobs and uh, turned out it turned out very well. Come on. Come on. Hey. That's funny. The door's not locked. Do you think it's been open all night? Well, I don't know. This is Friday. The store closes at 10, you know, and then old Mr. Wiedemeyer sweeps up and then he collects all the push cards. This, uh, this sequence here was shot in a town not far from Phoenixville in uh, Jerry's Market. Jerry was a friend of ours, and he had this market, which got bigger and bigger through the years, and it was sort of fun going in there and having a chance to do all of our little rigging and tricks and games in this place. And curiously enough, my youngest son, who um, was about... 10 when we were shooting this picture, I guess, or less, I can't recall. But he has married a, a gal whose maiden name was Wiedemeyer, almost the same as the name of the man whom Steve called out to as the owner <laughs> of this place. Oh, the broom and stuff that Mr. Wiedemeyer cleans up with. It's spread all over the aisle. This is the kind of thing that we just knew Steve would be great for. He was so physical. He could he, he could say more with his body than he could actually with his with his face or his voice. And he used things well. He he would go into a room and he you'd feel you'd see him putting his hands on the desk, on the wall, on a, a railing, on a doorknob. He he had to identify with the, the, the facilities that he was in. He had a good way of doing that. I remember this shot. We were sort of pleased with a dolly shot coming up here now. Let's see. Maybe we've already seen it. No, I guess we've gone past it. Because we hadn't done a lot of dollying in our early days of making movies. I bumped into some of these kids in, in L.A. in the years since. Of course, the blob to them was sort of an entrance into the industry. Uh, for, me, for me, this was very exciting being in this movie, as I said, because it was my first job, and I had been studying acting, but trying to learn how to relax uh, in front of an audience and do all the things that acting actors have to learn and I had gone to college I had gone to Carnegie <clears throat> Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and then I had come to New York and I found the neighborhood playoffs as Steve McQueen had done previously and I studied there and then uh, that started my career from the blob I went on to to uh, other other movies and other plays on Broadway and, and, and went to the actor's studio and became a member, and that was a big deal. In, in those days, uh, getting into the actor's studio was tantamount to getting a lead in 10 movies. It was very difficult to get in. 
and you audition sometimes four times, six times, seven times. And to get in was a big, big deal. Steve McQueen was a member of the Actors Studio, and Marlon Brando, and a lot of famous actors, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, uh, Dustin Hoffman, uh, all my, uh, uh, those last few, my contemporaries. And there was a famous actor's bar called Downey's, and you would audition for Eli Kazan, a famous director, and Lee Strasberg, and then you'd go over there and have a beer and wait until the phone rang and they would tell you, did you get in? Who got in? Who got in that year? Sometimes nobody got in out of thousands of auditions, sometimes two people, four people, three people, no people. And, and to jump up on a table at Downey's and scream, I made it, I made it, uh, everybody knew that meant you got into the actor's studio. This may be that dolly that I thought was so interesting when we had pulled it off because we'd not done stuff like this before. You have to cut you. There it is. That's the one. It's funny. You have to take the baby steps in making a, an experience which will end up by making you into a movie maker. And remember, all the guys doing this work were all absolutely untutored in films until they started working together. Most of my time was spent uh, with Steve when we weren't working. He sort of took me under his wing. I'm very, very impressed with him. He had a big effect on me in my life uh, as an actor and my own sense of the casting of the movie is that the kids like myself and and the other kid in the striped shirt whose name I don't remember and in the red shirt uh, we're all pretty much teenagers but when I look at Steve I remember that he was older he was more experienced I believe he had been in the Marines he had lived in New York City he was a member of the actor's studio which I later became a member of and so he was sort of a, if not a father figure to me, certainly a, a person who I wanted to emulate and who I respected a lot. And he in turn sensed in me somebody who wanted to learn and wanted to be a real actor. And, and uh, I had gone to Neighborhood Playhouse, or I was going to Neighborhood Playhouse, which is a wonderful acting school in New York City, still exists. And uh, he had gone there. Uh, gone into the Marines, and now he was back about to have a huge career. And I, I've always been impressed with Jack Harris and uh, Shorty Yeworth. That was the director's nickname, Shorty. That out of all the people that they could cast, they found Steve McQueen, maybe too old for the part, doesn't really look like a teenager to me, but a wonderful, charismatic person. And they must have had the sense to see uh, how how alive he was and 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 got him grabbed him for this part probably came very cheap too later he made millions of dollars here he probably got hundred and forty dollars and we got about seventy dollars a week but we got our food and we got a place to sleep and we stayed stayed there for about a month as I remember Oh, yeah, Steve and I bumped into each other uh, a number of times uh, in L.A. thereafter. And uh, 
we saw his career begin to decline. I didn't talk to him in the last uh, most successful years of his life. I used to be going to California frequently. I was doing a lot of television production out of Los Angeles, and I would do uh, syndicated shows out of L.A., and I flew there. I, I guess I spent more time in L.A. and New York and Dallas than any place else, uh, where I was making a lot of television shows. And then uh, we quit doing that and started doing more uh, work in our other directions and um, quit going to the coast so much and stayed more at our studios. So I didn't see Steve much anymore. There's Jasper Dieter, who was the founder and director of Hedgerow Theater, and who, um, who trained so many actors who went on to Hollywood. Nowadays, nobody knows what a civil defense helmet would mean. And that was something that carried on from the war years. This has never happened before. What am I going to wear? This was a set which we kept up in the, in one of our sound stages for uh, about ten years and redressed it in so many ways, just like Hollywood studios have done through the years. And oh man, it's been in a lot of movies dressed in different periods. When I think about the blob, I, I think about it differently than, than I did a few years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago when I was doing other movies like They Shoot Horses, Don't They, or Anna, or The Incident, or Stepford Wives, or whatever. Whatever uh, films that I've been in, I used, to, I used to have a little hesitation about it, and if if uh, my sister or my mother or, or somebody said, you know, Robert was in the original Blob, I would feel kind of funny. Well, I'm a, I'm a real actor. I'm a serious actor, you know, and that it made me, startled me, made me a little embarrassed or uncomfortable. But when I think about it now, uh, and I look at the film, which I did, I did look at it again after many, many years in order to do the, the DVD, I thought... This is, this is uh, more than respectable. It's a beautiful little film made for very little money, and uh, it has very commendable acting in it. The hedgerow actors are very simple and real. It has Steve McQueen in his first uh, job. As I said, I thought I, I did very good acting, very simple and spontaneous, and I can see my talent, and I can see how my hair is all black, how wonderful to, to see my hair the way it was. So for me now, I, I think I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of the movie, and I'm proud that I, that I was a part of it, and I'm proud that I got to spend that time with Steve McQueen. Okay, now I remember where the thousand people came from. Everybody showed up to be in that scene. And we're delighted. Of course, we did this after the supermarket closed, so it was done probably at 3 o'clock in the morning. These are folks from all over the place. They're the spirit carriers of our show.
That's my voice. <laughs> He's right, Lieutenant. Sheesh. And your job right now is to help me restore some order around here. Just a personal comment about the parts that we played, uh, teenage delinquents. It shows the passing uh, of 43 years in our culture, that these kids were like the kids that caused trouble in this little town for the police. They're just uh, teenage delinquents, I guess, in this little peaceful town where driving too fast would be the the worst thing they would do, or sneaking a cigarette or something. The movie is interesting in that respect because it shows where where the writing was 43 years ago, how simple and tame our culture was compared to now. It must be kind of odd for kids now to see this film. They, they probably are amused by how, how sweet and simple it is. Daughter, Mr. Martin. She can tell you more than I can. Phil, can you boys give us a hand clearing this area? Sure. Jack uh, Harris did uh, a very important job for us in keeping... Uh, the funds moving to us from the various uh, of the sponsors. Jack Harris put up a third of the money, I put up a third, and uh, the third of the money came up from a man up in, um, in New York who, who ran the, the laboratory of 20th Century Fox, Mike Friedman. And uh, my third came out of not paying ourselves for doing the thing, but uh, Jack dealt with some of the issues that, that related to getting the film up to New York and processed and, and dealing with uh, how we could afford to do this, that, and the other. And he kept his business going all through the every day and would come out in the afternoons or evenings to see how things were going. And he uh, was fully employed and couldn't get free to be with us during this actual filming, except for a few scenes here and there. And, the, so that, was, and that was also true on the, the next picture we made, which was called The 4D Man, who well, he got a bit more involved in the production then. And finally, on our third uh, joint venture, which was the uh, Dinosaurus film, he really got hands-on, which we uh, were happy to see him do, because he has the skills to organize and manage things. The man in the middle is Ted Simonson, the fellow who wrote the script. That's a screening where I was last week in the projection room up there while they were lacing up the film for our screening. Sure, Dave. Hey, what? Hey, who's in the store? Huh? Watermelons, four cents a pound. There's nobody in here but us monsters. Foiled again. Yes, I guess we had another couple of hundred people in this scene. And that shot there, what, what, the cameraman, Vince Spangler, was knocked on his back with the IMO camera in his hand, and that shot of those lights above him, people were actually stepping over him when that happened. When I saw him fall, I knew we had a shot that was going to be in the picture. And that IMO camera, which was used in that shot and several other shots, along with the big Mitchell shots, I used about a month ago when I was shooting over in Jordan for our Panavision show with a Panavision lens on it. And uh, we photographed the Pope 
who had come from the Vatican to Jordan on a pilgrimage, and I had a chance to be f filming him with that same IMO camera 40-some years after this was shot. I always kept it around uh, the place as sort of a, an old artifact from the movie, and lo and behold, I found out that it could work very well as a second camera for the shoot I was doing over in Jordan. Hadn't used it in 40-some years. This uh, diner, the Downingtown Diner, has since been grandly remodeled and changed names and ownership a number of times, though they kept the blob story. That's Vince Barbie, the old the guy there. He, he is a uh, well-known New York character actor. And the girl next to him is one that we considered for the lead role, a very fine actress, just didn't have what we wanted in the way of, of the appearance. They still had some of those same seats, though, and we had a chance to sit there on the 30th anniversary. Uh, the number of people that have called for interviews and television interviews and newspapers and magazines has been unbelievable through the years, and we agreed to do one here on the 30th anniversary of the blog. And that's the voice of the, of the editor, Al Hillman. You understand? Yeah. There should be enough juice in that line to burn the thing to a crisp. Yeah, get everyone down the cellar. We'll do it in 60 seconds, Steve. We actually lived in that place together, that 150 acres, in what had been the former summer campus of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, the oldest art academy in the United States, founded by Ben Franklin and others. And we bought this place from them and uh, lived there with our men, women, and children, families. And uh, so we all chipped in and did all kinds of things to make movies possible. Of course, this, uh, all of these things here were done by Art's, by Bart Sloan's uh, artful animation. Though those things were all hand drawn. In the next picture that we did together, the 4D man, actually uh, Bart did hand drawn mats as we had a man walking through walls and things. And one of the last hand drawn mat pictures ever made. Yep, that was obviously animation. What can be done with digital effects now is unbelievable. It didn't work. Why don't you do something? Do something! <laughs> I guess the, the thing that, we're, that we were proud of about this picture was not the quality of it, nor the drama, nor the script, or... Uh, the way it was carried off. We were just proud that a bunch of people who had decided to band together to make films of substance, which would challenge people and, and get across ideas and, and uh, cause people to think and to make films which challenged people emotionally and spiritually in every way we could, that we who taught ourselves how to make films uh, could actually make a theatrical film which 
Paramount would buy. So we were pretty excited about that part of it. Our company uh, was started. Uh, in the beginning, we did nothing but religious films. And uh, one of the critics, as a matter of fact, said, I guess if uh, the, this uh, religious film company couldn't um, convert people, they would make a picture like this and scare the hell out of everybody. So um, that was, um, uh, it was fun for us to see if we could talk to the non-parochial audience because we'd made so many films all over the world uh, dealing with religious and social and educational issues to see if we could do an entertainment film. And so that's why we were looking forward to making a film like this to see if we could, in fact, talk to the, the non-parochial or educational audience. And so when Paramount bought it, we were just tickled. And then when it did well, we were even more tickled. There's the love theme from the blob again. Yeah, the special effects certainly were not the star of the movie, though they they held their own for the era. But uh, compared to what can be done today, it's just uh, unbelievable. We had to go with the, the story. <coughs> CO2! Hey, that's it. It's cold! That's why it didn't come in the icebox after us. It can't stand cold! The riddle is solved. We didn't want the answer to the, to the horrible problem to come from left field. We wanted it to be something which really was right there, like any good mystery. That, that it's Of course, it didn't like cold, and therefore we'll use cold to get it. But what do you do? You can't kill it. You can't destroy it. You can't blow it up. It has no heart that you can stop. How do you get rid of this thing which is growing more and more all the time? All we can do is to use the cold to somehow get it away from where the people are because it seems to like particularly warm-blooded people and animals. So the ultimate solution was to get all the CO2 extinguishers we could get, and so the kids hopped into their car and the kids are about to save the town. And maybe, who knows, the country, and possibly humanity as we know it. The blob required us now to have, of course, big equipment. We had the Mitchell cameras and the, and, uh, the, the uh, perambulating dollies and things which we had never used before in our uh, more mundane, less expensive films for education and for church use and so forth. And so in this case here, we really had to keep that equipment uh, busy all the time because uh, we couldn't afford to rent it for too many days. I think we did the whole shoot in a th three-week period. And um, uh, the most valuable, uh, most expensive part of our whole production in those days was the film rental and uh, the, the sorry the the film equipment rental the cameras and so forth and the film stock itself and 
the most expendable part was our own bones and our own bodies because uh, our, our gang was living and working together. There were 50 men, women, and children living together out at Chester Springs at our studios with 150 acres and 18 buildings and three sound stages, and we ate our meals together in a common dining room because we couldn't afford to, to, to pay ourselves enough so that we could cook in our own apartment, so we ate together three meals a day. And um, so uh, we used to kid ourselves about the fact that we had to use that equipment night and day, and so uh, it costs the same when you rent this equipment. It costs the same whether you rent it or whether you use it for uh, 6, 10, 12 hours a day or whether you use it 24 hours a day. So we really ran that stuff as long as we could, and we used to kid about the fact that our night crew was our day crew showing up in their pajamas so they could keep working and pretend like they were sleeping. It was very, very... A difficult, grueling kind of a period, but we all cared about it, wanted to get it done. In a review of one of my films uh, by the Cahiers de Cinema, the uh, French New Wave magazine, they tried to find out what the the message was of this film, as well as the uh, the film Dinosaurus. And uh, we weren't trying to make any overt um, social message in this, except for the fact that yeah you gotta you gotta make sure that you when you're trying to solve a problem you look to the best solutions and that uh, people can um, render more help than you would think them capable of once you know what the true values that are that they possess and that these kids were worthwhile and that somehow they and the adult population could get together and jointly solve a problem but we weren't really trying to do that as much as we were trying to scare people and have them come to the theater and and have the little girls get scared and jump into the arms of the little boy sitting next to them. That's That was what we were really trying to do. And also, we were trying to see if we could make a movie that anybody would want to go see. Well, I want to thank you for getting us out of there, you know. For a while, I didn't think we were going to make it. That makes two of us. What are they going to do with that thing, Dave? Well, after having not seen it for a long time, uh, it's been sort of fun, and I'm glad that uh, I had to be forced to watch it again because it's the kind of thing that you don't really want to look at after you've made something so many years ago. We started working on it about 45 years ago, and uh, that's a long time. But we're, we're glad that people liked it well enough to, to do, make it do well and also that it's uh, sort of kept... Uh, its own little tradition going. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed watching it again. Thank you, Paramount, for letting us see the light of day. <laughs>